My next guest is a public servant. She was the elected at-large city council member for the city of Houston, and she continues to do great impactful work for the city. Please welcome Amanda Edwards. Amanda, how's it going? It's going well. How about you? I'm doing fine. I'm doing good. Doing good. Hey, I want to thank you for coming on to the podcast. Really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate you thinking of me for this. Okay. Well, thanks. All right. So let's get right into it. What do you do? Well, that's a complicated question. <laughs> I am an attorney by trade. So I am a lawyer and have been so for quite some time. My background in that was municipal finance or public finance, as they call it. So I worked on building public projects like schools and hospitals and basically putting those deals together and helping finance those deals. So trying to bring capital either in the form of bonds to the table or other means and trying to get big projects financed and also uh, working with nonprofits and other organizations to help them with their general counsel needs. I did that in a large law firm context uh, for several years before I decided to run for office. And so in 2015, I ran at large citywide, so covering about 2.3 million constituents and won uh, my race to be an at-large Houston City Council member. I served in that role from 2016 until 2020. So uh, I ran and won in 15. I took office in 16. And in that role, I did a bunch of things. I was vice chair of the Budget and Fiscal Affairs Committee. Um, so I dealt with a lot of our financial challenges at the city, um, but I also got a chance to be on the Economic Development Committee and also uh, I, I got very active on issues of transportation. So, for example, I started our high capacity transit task force for the regional authority that uh, gets to decide transportation projects. And so I led that effort. Um, I also started a task force at the city for technology and innovation. So not because you missed that part of my background. I was not a tech or a <laughs> tech person before. I just saw that there was a, a need in our community because the ecosystem of folks in the ecosystem are saying we have trouble attracting venture capital investment, which a lot of startups need in order to really get the support that they need to get going. And so really wanted to figure out how could we solve for that challenge? How could we start to make more investment dollars available so our startups could stay here in Houston rather than having an idea or business start and having to move elsewhere because you don't have the financial support. So we worked on that. Now I serve on the board of directors for Houston Exponential, which is a nonprofit that is really cultivating those solutions. We had a lot of solutions we offered up, but really trying to implement those strategies. So I do that. I also spearheaded and initiative with regard to women and minority business owners because minority business owners in particular are so much less likely to gain access to traditional forms of capital. So in fact, there's a stat that shows that minorities are three times more likely to get turned down for a traditional capital than their non-minority counterparts. So mm. that's three no's that you hear for every yes. And right. so just thinking about how that's so challenging and cultivating an ecosystem that supports minority businesses and women businesses. And so I started a task force for that and started really developing some strategies on how we could reduce some of that disparity. And then I also, in addition to the tech and innovation and, and the high capacity transit and, and the work that I was doing with business owners and, and, and trying to spur growth and reduce disparities there, was very, very active in terms of making sure that we weren't leaving neighborhoods or communities behind. So I helped us spearhead the Mayor's Complete Communities Initiative in concert with the effort to invest in communities that have been traditionally under-resourced. So a lot of things that I got a chance to work on as a council member, some things I picked, meaning that were a part of a vision I had, but some things I had to respond to. So I was very, very active with regard to our Harvey recovery efforts and immediate response, but then also longer-term recovery and trying to get people the resources that they needed. So um, that's a lot of what you do as a public servant. You have things that you can be proactive about and having a vision and trying to make that come to fruition, but then 
then you also have that reactive or, you know, responsive component of your work. And, you know, it's not necessarily what you thought you were going to get up and do that day, but somebody needs your help in a particular way. And you've got to be able to be nimble and flexible and respond to that. So I got a chance to do that as well. Love serving so much, I decided that I would put my hat in the ring and and vie for the U.S. Senate to challenge John Cornyn for the U.S. Senate. And we knew that the state of Texas was was ripe for change and that 2020 would be a very unique and special year. I always used to say that I had no idea what I was talking about because I didn't even know anything about COVID at that time. And so it's very unique and special for some different ways. But Ran in that Democratic primary, did not win the race, but certainly ran statewide. And and it was a tremendous uh, opportunity to really get out and connect with people and and really try to move the needle forward in terms of our politics in Texas. And um, and so now I'm really, really excited about the potential change on the horizon come this November 2020 cycle for the presidency. So although I did not win, uh, sometimes that's part of your journey. When you get into elected offices, is sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. You got to be able to roll with those, those punches. And certainly now I'm very active in trying to make sure that we do have the change to take place that is needed at this time. And I started a nonprofit called Be The Solution Community Empowerment Organization. Um, and I am launching my own podcast very shortly. <laughs> I won't tell you the name. I don't want to mess up my launch. <laughs> <laughs> so stay tuned. But it will be Great. rolling out next month. Uh, I hope I have not revealed too much. But <laughs> And so all of those things have been a very eventful time in my, my short time and my career, but have been very, very strong adventures, I will say the least, to say the least. Great. Wow. Now, you've been on several committees, the vice chair of the finance department, a lot of the initiatives you had, and the Women and Minority Owned Business Task Force. I want to get more into that and dig deeper into that, but let's talk about that election in 2015. You're running statewide, sorry, sorry, you're running statewide for the at-large position, and I know you've had a lot of wins before. You were president of your student body council. You're on the uh, Emory University Hall of Fame. Yeah. Okay. Harvard Law, all that. But this is now you're running citywide for the first time. You win the at-large position, but you don't only win. You had the most votes of anybody in that municipal election, even the mayor. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. And, you know, I will tell you a little story about that election just to kind of tell people, even though the outcomes can be wonderful and all those things, it doesn't mean the race itself is easy. And in fact, in that race in particular, I did not get the newspaper endorsement. Mm. So when I was running and there were seven people in my race. So I have this knack of picking easy races to get into. I'm just kidding. I really don't. (laughs) (laughs) But in this case, there were seven people in my race and, and I did not get the endorsement from the newspaper. They actually wrote a very nice write-up and the other candidate they endorsed had, had run before and had more familiarity with the other candidate. I was, it was my first time running, but no insults on my qualifications. They thought I was very prepared and qualified, but uh, we went with another candidate. And I was just completely in that moment, you know, I could not believe that, of course, I was going to get the endorsement and I didn't. And what it did, instead of that deterring me or making me feel disappointed or, you know, feel like I wasn't going to win the race, I actually thought about, like, how could I use this as some momentum builder? And so I got my sellers to get activated. I said, listen, guys, we got, y'all need to be worried. I didn't even get the endorsement. And I was like, what? You didn't get the endorsement from the paper? What? What can I do? So a lot of the confidence that my supporters have because they just because you are a qualified candidate doesn't mean you're going to win. You've got to have the the campaign in place to put you in office. And so my supporters really kind of turned things up and got really excited about doing their part to help me get elected. And so I think it was actually a very positive turning point for me. Although it could be viewed as a negative in that moment, you've got to look at how you can turn those negatives into positives. Right. And so in my case, I used that as an opportunity to get my my coalition of folks motivated and helping me with the election. Great. Okay. Now that's that's awesome. You didn't let that deter you at all. You kept going for it. you you saw your goal and you kept going for it. Now with that election though, two thousand fifteen, can you 
just bring us back there and talk about how you found out that you won, your feelings, and what you did right after. Well, I, so I had, I had two races because there were seven people in the race. So the first race right. was to get into the runoff. All right. So that I was pretty confident that night that I was going to make it into the runoff. Okay. I was pretty confident that I would, but you never know. Right. But I, I felt good. So by the time I arrived to my election night party, they had already counted the early votes and statistics it would have been almost impossible for me not to have made it into the runoff. So it was not really, so when I walked in, people were like, yay, congratulations. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't really like what you see on TV with people okay. pacing and it wasn't that kind of party. It was, you know, but I wasn't complaining. Don't, <laughs> don't get me wrong. So I was happy about that. But I got nervous in the second round because mm. I would call people about the campaign and tell them, you know, come back out and vote. And they'd say, oh, but you already won. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I didn't already win. I gotta, you gotta vote for me again. So I was thinking, I was worried that too many people were saying to me, oh, we already thought you already won, that they weren't gonna turn back out and vote again because we had a runoff election. So my big thing that second time around was the education on that information because a lot of people necessarily participate in municipal elections and so Mm -hmm. they might be the first time they're voting they don't know it's not just who got the most votes it's you got to get past 50 percent in order to win so with that being said the second time around i made it a point to get to my campaign event earlier but I still wasn't early enough. So by the time I got there, I got a call from uh, one of my team members and they said, congratulations to the council member. And I was like, oh, thank you. But they, they spoiled it for me before I got to my party. Uh, <laughs> so uh. of course we watched everything, but you can kind of tell generally how things are tracking by the early vote. So as soon as that early vote count comes in, if you've got a substantial lead, you can tell you're going to win. Right. You know, unless right. something really crazy happened on election day, they usually are somewhat similar. They're not identical, but the patterns will be similar. Okay. Um, All right. So if the margin is big. And so in that case, my margin was pretty big. And so I got to my party. So it was relaxed, but a good, good. I mean, yeah. It was fun. And people flew in and for it and Joe came in and it was on a Saturday. And so it was nice. It was nice. fun. All uh, right. Yeah. So that was the when I won. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so, okay. So you, so now you're a city council member and you talked about the different uh, committees that you were on yeah. and some of the initiatives that you've done, but can you just talk about in, in general, what a city council member does? Absolutely. So you're, real job is to kind of serve as a board of directors for your city, your board of managers, you approve contracts over $50,000, you make sure that people are safe and protected, law enforcement, emergency services, trash collection, very basic social welfare things you're responsible for. But most of the time people like to operate out of that, those confines. So besides for those things, those are kind of the, you know, you vote every week on measures that you pass, you serve on committees. But I, I took a very proactive approach. You know, I had a vision for the city. I wanted Houston to be the place where the Gulf Coast and the world's future met. And so in order to do that, I had a big vision and I had some goals. I wanted us to be making some headway. We talk a lot about diversity, for example, and how we're number one and we're the most diverse city in the country. And I always say this, what good is it if you're the most diverse, if you're not addressing the challenges that impact diverse communities? You know, let's look at a step further than statistics and let's go into impact because this is about transformative leadership. And so I really have a passion for transformative leadership and really making it about impact. And so that's been the focus that I've had in my time, whether it was the tech and innovation space, whether it was small business ownership, whether it was looking at how we can invest in under-resourced areas, whether it was trying to get uh, investment into our high-capacity transit efforts. I mean, just 
a variety of things. And sometimes you win, sometimes you don't, but you, you push and you, you, you're strategic and you do your very best. And I always just approached every day as if it was going to be my last day on council and basically left it out on the court every day. Yeah. And so people ask, oh, technically, you know, you don't have to do all of this stuff, <laughs> you know, I, I just felt the passion. And I think that's when you follow or when you are in line with your purpose, you can just continue to do it until you, you don't, you just run out of steam. And that was kind of the case for me. So. Yeah. Well, I love that. And you can definitely see your passion for all that you've done while you were there, just researching and looking at all you've done and not only just there, just other places too, like the uh, project now in new Orleans. Yeah, you yeah. Did. So, so yeah, you, I love it. Love your passion. Now, now for some of these, can you, let's say for the women and minority owned business task force, can you talk a little bit about kind of drill down and talk about what was done? Yeah, so we had the task force. Now that came closer to the end of my term. So I was in office until 2020. Now I could have run again for office again, had I not run for Senate, but because I was running for Senate, I did not run again for my seat for the council. But while I was there, we got the recommendations. We did a bunch of study based on factual information about where we were as an ecosystem. Where are we falling short in terms of what we were supporting in our ecosystem? What we found was that, for example, the organizations that are in place to help support small businesses and business planning and financial planning, just different resources that could really be that connective tissue to help them be successful. Those organizations were not connected with each other. So we knew we needed to have kind of a collaborative approach. And so we formed what we call the Business Economic Alliance for Minorities and Women. And that is basically an alliance to focus on those solutions that we came up for in our report. So we have a huge report. I probably have it handy somewhere right here. Actually, I do. But we have a big report of the recommendations and the strategies we would like to implement. And that's going to be the clearinghouse for implementing those strategies. So that work is underway presently, especially right now. And in fact, we are seeking grant funding and all of that good stuff. But we're looking at hosting networking forums, but also providing underlying support for people who need real counseling on the on their business and it's, so it's not just oh here's a referral go find it you know go find some help someplace else and so we're looking at and we're working on ways to make sure those strategies come to life but it's all of that connective tissue a lot of the times people will tell you you're not qualified or alone but they don't work with you to help you get qualified right and so we're trying to provide that underlying support for that okay that's great it's great that you're doing that now have there been any surprises to you in this of being a public servant, like things that you didn't know about beforehand coming into this? And in addition to that, any misconceptions, the things that people might not know about uh, public servants? Uh, there are so many stories. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it can be, you know, it, it is very much there. I mean, there are a lot of smoke and mirrors in public service and then mm. there's a lot of like real good work that gets done. And I think, we tend to lump everybody into the same boat. Yeah. And so you've had one bad encounter with one person and that means everybody's bad. Or you've had one good encounter with someone and that means everyone's good. And yeah. the answer is neither one of those statements are true. I think you meet a whole lot of different people just because one thing that I always tell people, one, one thing that's been very disappointing in terms of just me seeing it from the side is like how much accountability is needed between public and the public servants. So in other words, the squeaky wheel really does get to grease. Mm -hmm. So if people aren't amplifying their voices about a concern, people are, uh, the assumption is, is that it's not an issue. And so that is not the correct assumption. A lot of the times it's the people whose voices are so quiet where the problems are the worst. And so they've given up hope. They don't even raise the concern anymore because nobody's going to hear me. It's kind of the, that disconnect. And I think that piece of it, has, that's definitely one of the parts that is hardest to deal with in terms of really helping to amplify the voices and then to actually do something about those challenges. Because a lot of the stuff that's complicated, like poverty, for example, those are tangled issues. You know, poverty, those are what's left. The complicated stuff, that's the stuff that doesn't, that doesn't have the pretty ribbon cutting. Like, oh, we fixed poverty today. It's not that easy, <laughs> you know? Like, right. you know, you build a bridge, but 
fixing poverty today that's a little bit bigger uh, and more complex and we gotta have people who are really committed to that but are also really skilled at doing the work and it's not just the skill in terms of understanding on a substantive issue standpoint of these issues but it's also a skill in terms of navigating politics and so i say all the time i don't like politics i really don't like politics mm. i've always said that i still don't like politics but i love service i love wow. having an impact i know that there are people who are needed in politics that can make a difference and so that's what makes me go toward that direction but it doesn't mean that i enjoy the ugly part of politics and politics can be ugly yeah. and have very little to do with impact and people and a lot to do with a whole lot of other things, the uh, ego and the rest. And so navigating through that is, you know, a necessary evil if you're going to impact people through policy as an elected official. Yeah. Okay. I can see that now. Now, as far as the Senate race, I know that it wasn't the outcome that you wanted, but you were one of five that had at least 10% or more of the vote. And, you know, and as you said, as part of your journey. So what, what have you taken from that situation? Don't get into yeah. races with 12 people in them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm teasing, I'm teasing. <laughs> Not really, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's one of those, it's the truth. It was what I knew when I got into my first race. Mm. You can't control the dynamics of your race. Right. You can only do the best you can do while in your race. And I was committed to running a very principled campaign, not going negative, really focusing on the issues. I was tired of politics. Yeah. I was tired. I didn't want to do politics. I mm -hmm. wanted to do real issues, results, focus on that, focus on the people, make it about what the work should be about. That's what I wanted to make my campaign about. And I think we did that. I think we had challenges overall breaking through. Having 23, 24 Democratic presidential candidates, yeah. uh, 12 U.S. Senate candidates. I mean, it was overwhelming for people. And we have an early primary in Texas. Right. So we have an uh, early March primary. So we were at a space and place where people were still trying to like process what mm. was happening on the presidential. So they had not really started to focus, I think, on the Senate race. So all of the, the candidates had a challenging time, I think, breaking through in such a crowded, noisy atmosphere in terms of what the presidential election posed. So it was a little bit different than when Beto ran in 18, the Senate was the top of the ticket, you know? Right. And so in 20, of course, that's not the case, it's presidential year. So the presidential was at the top of the ticket. So. It, it, I think it, there were some things like that that were difficult to break through and get people focused on the race in enough time. Oh, yeah. I would also say time was challenging. I didn't get into the race until July mm -hmm. and mid-July. And, um, and as a result, my runway was so short. So my, my election day was um, in March. And so early vote was in February. So that's a short runway for a, a race of that size. So giving more runway to get in the race, raising money that you need, doing the, getting the exposure you need. And, and I think those were some of the, you know, takeaway like lessons learned in terms of mechanics. Um, do I regret not slapping at my opponents more or <laughs> something like that? No, I don't regret that. I think I ran a race that I could be proud of. So that I don't regret. But certainly, you know, like you said, the dynamics of your race really aren't necessarily in your hands always. Right. And so that's a challenge that always will exist if you run for office. Mm. All right. So when did you know that you wanted to be a lawyer and when did you know you wanted to be in public service? You know, I don't really give a straight answer on that question very well. I really can't remember when I wasn't interested in those things. Now, I, I say when I was a little bitty child, I'm sure there, there were many things I said I wanted to be, but probably very early, I would say definitely knew I wanted to be a lawyer for sure when I was in high school. But I, I think I knew that before then. And I also 
always had in my mind that I would be many things. So I think at one point I wanted to be a lawyer and a fashion designer, politician. I mean, you name it. <laughs> I was going to do all these things, a chef, a this, a that. You know, I was doing all of it. So I think over time I kind of narrowed it down. But I was always interested in public service in different ways. So I would say always interested in leadership since you know, I, we were talking about church since St. Monica. I was a junior daughter. I was I was a grand lady of the junior daughters. And so very early on, I was interested in leadership. I think I became much more connected and understood the importance of leadership and the significance of leadership to other people, actually, when my father passed away. So my dad died when I was 17. He had uh, multiple myeloma, he had cancer. And as a result of me learning about what is this insurance stuff, close and personal, because my dad was getting these treatments, I said, well, what happens if they say no? What happens? I'm learning. What is this? I said, oh, so they have to say yes? Or what happens if they say no? And then I said, you know, he would say, well, we just have to figure something else out. I'm like, what happens when people can't? You know, I had those kinds of questions. So fundamentally, I just felt like our system didn't make much sense in terms of just if you didn't have good coverage, good private coverage, then you might be tossed aside and your life just be over, you know? And to me, that just seems inherently unfair. And so I understood then that it's not just about who's in front of the line and who's in charge and who gets to boss people around. It's really about who can make the decisions that are right for other people mm -hmm. and that contemplate the concerns and the gravity of those concerns. And I think it made me mature in a very significant way by seeing what my father went through and then equating that to policy. Right. Because I understand that the system that we have is a result of policy or the lack thereof, right? Mm -hmm. And I think having that experience that early very much matured my per this perspective about what service is. And it's really about serving people rather than being in charge in your own ambition. It isn't to say you can't have ambition and be in public service and, and that be okay. Of course, uh, I, of course you can have ambition, but if that is the sole guidepost, when that can't be the sole guidepost, I guess is, is my point. You've got to be able to understand the concerns of others and really push to, to get those things delivered for them because their lives are literally ha hanging in the balance. Right. Well, you definitely understand the concerns of others and you've been servicing and supporting people for a while now. And I believe you even won an award for your work in supporting underserved communities. That well, you know, I don't really talk too much about awards other than say to me, the biggest reward, I mean, I've, mm -hmm. I've gotten lots of awards and stuff over time, but to me, the biggest reward ever is just a simple thank you from mm. the person you've helped and mm. like the real thank you where yeah. they're touched. So like when they come up and they give you a hug and they said, I didn't think this was going to happen. That type of response to me just warms my heart in such yeah. a deep way because you have restored someone's confidence in a system that hasn't been working very well for them. Yeah. And your ability to then do the things that you've been sworn to office to do. And you don't, you don't get sworn to office to do all of these things, but you, you know, you, you get sworn in to serve. And, and so the fact that you know that your service mattered and that it helped and it furthered someone's trajectory in some way, that to me is the most gratifying uh, of any type of award, reward or accolade I can yeah. imagine. It's just that real heartfelt thank you and you know sometimes they'll be make me tear up when they they get emotional but yeah. that's the that's the gratification for me yeah for sure, for sure. That, that's great to hear and we need more people like you in public service now can you talk about a, a typical day of yours when you're in city council what what did that look like a mess <laughs> 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 so you know the crazy part is there's never a typical day other than me running around with my hair on fire so one day I might be running a council meetings committee meetings then I'm out jumping rope with kids then I go back into a hearing and then I have a bunch of civic club meetings I love meetings with the community people always 
always get so perplexed about, don't you get tired? You know, <laughs> I get that question. I was like, don't you get tired? Don't you get tired? Don't you want to sleep? And I, I'll sleep later. <laughs> like, I don't get tired. I feel energized by the people. Mm. I get tired. You know, what tires me is just politics as usual. So if you can't make that difference, if you're not affecting change, if you're not touching people's lives, if you're not doing the work and being effective at it, that's tiring. But when you get to work and empower people directly, even if it's going to a civic club meeting and people being mad at the meeting, give me that meeting because that's part of my job. I'm not here to be available to you only when you're pleased. I'm here to be available to you consistently and ongoing. Right. And so even if you're upset, let me hear it. What is the issue? It's not for me to hide when people are upset or something is not going in the direction that is optimal. It's up to you to go listen and then go back and fix it or be a part of that fix or be a part of the solution. What I would often do when people would have complaints, I'd educate them on why things are the way they are. I would be willing to be an advocate, but I also say, don't think I'm going to come over here and fix it for you. That's not how this works either. I need you to partner with me to fix it. And so I play a role. I will go to city hall and, you know, I know how to pull levers at city hall. I will get those levers pulled, but I need the public to come with me and tell. So when I say, and the public is here with me and I look to my left, y'all better be back there. (laughs) Don't leave me over here by myself. Because as I mentioned, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, Mm -hmm. right? So if this wheel's not squeaking and it can't just be my voice because I squeak a lot. (laughs) And so it can't just be my voice. It's got to be the voices of the community squeaking along with me. Mm-hmm. That's when you're going to see traction. And, and that's when you see the change. When it's perceived that it's just, oh, that's just Councilmember Edwards. You know, if that's the perception, and of course, it has far less weight than if it's, oh, that's Councilmember Edwards and all of the community. Right. So we better do something different than what we're doing right now. Because, yeah. you know, and that's unfortunate that that's, a motivating factor but that's just the reality of what it is and sometimes you just have to work within the the realities of what are uh, you know the way things are and and so advocacy from community from a direct standpoint is so important mm. Mm. all right and now now skill set of course you have to have a, a passion for what you're doing for public service and guessing leadership, multitasking, but what, what type of skills and characteristics would you say are most important to be successful city council member? Well, I often got criticized for this, but I don't regret a moment of it. I used to read everything. Mm. Read The devil is in the details. Mm-hmm. The devil is in the details. And I got criticized for it and was like, oh, of course, council member was going to read this. And I should be reading it. Right. <laughs> like, you know, like, I cannot have the public trust me to, to, to take a vote, and I don't know what I'm voting on, right? right. So you got to read. I promise you that the devil mm. is in the detail. Yeah. And so that's important. I would say, so analytical skills, mm. uh, understanding the implications, unintended consequences, those things are very important. Understanding how to build communities. And, and when I say that, I have a background in community building and social change. I was a fellow in college and I was a focal point. I've been president of Project Row Houses, board of directors. Understanding that you do not impose your will on communities. That's not the way you build a community response or community answers. You engage them. You don't engage them as a matter of a rubber stamp. You engage them upfront treat the people in the community with the respect that they deserve and that you listen you go and you engage there's a process and the, and the reason for it is not just so that you don't hear community angst it's so that your change that you're promoting actually is sustainable and actually does become long-term because it's embraced by the community you are seeking to serve that's how you have to go about approaching change and building and helping to support our communities to be the stronger, strongest communities they can be. And that's mm. one of my philosophies. The other piece, you know, tell the truth. To a fault, I'm honest. 
and I tell the truth. And sometimes the people that love me to pieces, I'm going to tell them something they don't like to hear me say. Because it's more important for me you to be able to trust me than it is for you to always be able to like me. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, I'm no good if you don't trust me anymore. I'm no good to the public. It's a, it's a position of public trust. And what good am I in a position of public trust if you can't trust me? Mm. So, and I'm just honest about that. And I, you know, some days you're going to love what I say and you'll be, oh, I love it. Say it again. And then the next day you'll be like, I can't believe she's not going to do this. And I'll tell you why. I'm very, you know, very open about that because I realize that I'm also here to be a conduit. And so it is my job to also have transparency in why I'm doing what I'm doing. And sometimes there are some unintended consequences. There's an asymmetry of information you may not know. So it's my job. That's why I always am in the community because it's also been my job to make sure I'm equipping you with the information. Maybe Mm -hmm. once I share this information with you, we might actually be on the same side about this. And that oftentimes is the case. But a lot of times, you know, it's busy, it's time consuming. It's People can get very overwhelmed with public service and they forget the communication piece, which is key. Right. Communication is so important. And being effective, you got to get mm. stuff done. Let me add that. Mm. What good am I just if I give you great speeches? I cannot right. be on a stage giving a great speech if I don't back it up with a great action. Right. And that's the key piece that I think also really makes people feel disconnected because they feel let down by the broken promises that they heard on the campaign trail or that rousing speech you gave that you didn't do any follow-up on. Mm-hmm. We can't do that. Right. We have got to follow up our words with action and we have to be effective. So I encourage people in the public to hold your leadership accountable for the yeah. things that they say they're going to do. I often may be aligned with people on certain topics, but I don't talk about the certain topic unless I have a clear vision on what I want to do about that or how I want to engage them about that. To me, it's important that we have that sense of urgency on the action just as well as the speaking out component of the job. All right. So your analytical skills, being able to comprehend what you're working on, communication, being effective. And then you you mentioned just reading. You read everything. You read so much and you're reading these bills and you're working with all these laws. You're proposing them, passing, ratifying them. So I can see that law degree coming into work for sure for you. But is that something you recommend for anyone trying to get into public service or being a city council member? I can only say what was helpful to me, but I can't say that that's the one path and everybody needs to have that as a prerequisite. I wouldn't say that, but it was definitely helpful to me. But not just having a law degree, having life experience was helpful to me. Mm -hmm. So everybody used to kid me or tease me about my age and that I look a little younger. I am a little younger, but but that um they would say, oh, have you finished college yet? You know, those kinds of things. But, uh, you know, having the life experience, I have more experience than the way I look. So <laughs> in terms of professionals, so I practiced law for many years before I got into public service. Mm. And I think that really helped me to have an understanding of and have a background in a professional context before entering into public service. Not to say everybody has to have it. I'm just, you know, only referring to my experiences. It wasn't just having a law degree. So I think about how better equipped I was to make the decisions and have the perspective and make the pushes that I made because I had experience in a number of these arenas. So I was basing that off of experience. And so mm-hmm. that helped me also. So it wasn't just a degree in isolation, it's having real life experiences as well. Okay. Now, can you talk about what you love about what you do? I love people. I love helping people making change in the community. I love it. I, I absolutely love it. I can do it nonstop. Um, and so it's just my passion to, to affect change and empower people and communities. And that's just what I was designed to do. And so, you know, it, you know I've been, I'm doing it. I'm doing it now in the private sector, but in the public sector, that's what I was doing. I just love that. Mm-hmm. And you find that thing you're passionate about, whatever that is, that's what it is for me. And if you don't know what it is, be on a vigorous pursuit of figuring out what it is that makes you that passionate. But whatever it is, you should be able to do it nonstop 
up until it's time for you just to pass out every day because that's how much you are committed in, to it and love it. That's when you found that purpose and mission and, 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 and that purpose in terms of alignment with yourself. And I think that's really important. Okay. All right. Now, what about on the flip side? I know you mentioned, you know, some of the dirty tactics that are out there when you're running for office, but what other things out there are, are challenges uh, for you or obstacles or things that make you uh, keep you up at night? Well, I don't like politics, but I don't know if that keeps me up at night. <laughs> um, I don't know if that keeps me up at night, but yeah, I mean, you know, people just not being effective at the job. Mm. You know, I mean, I just, I like to get, I like to do less talk and let's get more, let's do more working and mm. get some stuff done and get it right. I like to see that be the emphasis. Let's not do surface level stuff. Let's go right. deep. Let's have impact. Let's be, let's make the transformational changes that people deserve and that you talked about on the campaign. Let's do it. So let's back up what we say with our actions. And I mean, that can be stressful because for political reasons, people will try to obstruct that. So you're here trying to get a job done and they're like, mm, you didn't vote on my last measure the way I wanted you to. So I'm gonna have to hold up your stuff. And you're like, this is not about me, this is about the community. But you know, it's politics. So wow. when it, it can be a dirty game, mm. a very dirty game. The problem is, is that people lose when you play a game with their, with their right. lives. And that's the problem with politics. All right, yeah. All right, now do you have a uh, most memorable moment or most memorable moments you wanna talk about? <laughs> uh, most memorable moments. I'll give you a funny moment. Right. And when I, I, I got asked the question a lot when I won and we had the, and it was the inauguration and people ask me, what was it like when you were on the stage? What was going through your mind as you were walking uh, across the stage? My mom escorted me. Uh, and honestly, I know it sounds horrible that I'm saying this, but I'm just telling you the truth. I'm, I'm secretly clumsy. So people, thank God no one has seen this publicly yet. Um, but I am secretly very clumsy. And so there were these X's stage about where you're supposed to stand and I had on some new new lower heeled shoes which sounds safe enough but they're not because you should never wear new shoes on a stage and so I was so worried that that was going to be my moment of exposing just how clumsy that I am that I was going to slip and fall the only thing that was passing through my mind was to make sure I was lifting my feet appropriately so I didn't like slide across the stage you know with a slippery shoe Yep. And so I, that was the only thing I was thinking about was where, make sure my mom stood in the right place, make sure I stood in the right place, make sure we both stayed up. The <laughs> goal was nobody lays horizontally on this stage. We're going to be standing upright. We're going to make it to the other side of the stage. And so people didn't know that, that that was what my mind, that was what was really going through my mind in real life. I kid you not. I was not like nothing else, not the election. The or the no, <laughs> was not caught in the emotion. I was caught up in this. You will stay upright as you walk around, across the stage. This will not be the moment where you take a spill. And mm. that was the only thing I was thinking about. And so we got when we now I had all kinds of emotional thoughts afterward was great but not in the it was we had business to cover right. we to <laughs> and we had to stay upright that's what i was thinking about um so that's kind of a funny moment um and then more serious probably was harvey uh mm. in terms of just you know sometimes people can shut down in those kinds of moments and thankfully that's just you know not the way i'm mired in being able to get into a space where you know you you're you're processing, you're thinking on your toes, you're responding, you're providing the help that people need and you just go and you just on, it just, it's autopilot and you just keep running. And I, I was grateful to have been able to help people during that time and afterward in terms of the canvassings that we were going door to door. We mobilized hundreds of volunteers to, to do that work, which still needs to be done. There are so many people who still need help, sadly enough. Um, and, and so really staying vigilant, that's something that I felt very much called to, to be in that space and place at that time. Right. Yeah, no, definitely. 
now with that, do you want to talk a little bit about Project Now? Oh, Project Now? Oh, well, yes, that was when I was in New Orleans. Yeah. Um, I was clerking, so I moved down to New Orleans after law school, and it was after Katrina. Right. And I got in a federal clerkship, and I wanted to help kids in, in New Orleans, and I didn't know exactly what I was going to do when I got there, but when I got there, developed a proposal, started the New Orleans Writing Project, where we were introducing seventh graders to how to use writing as a tool to empower themselves after they had been impacted by Katrina. And it was such a therapeutic experience, mm -hmm. probably not just for them, but for me too. I, I just loved it. Yeah. And so working with the kids, getting them exposed to different genres of writing, uh, poetry, and, you know, just, you know, writing op-eds and I had guest lecturers come in and it was so much fun. And I just really loved the kids. And it was a great, great, great experience. Mm -hmm. I almost stayed in New Orleans as a result, mm -hmm. but I decided that, I would go back home to Houston and, you know, just as well as I know that you don't have to necessarily have a physical storm for right. there to be need in a community. You got a lot of need, whether there's a name storm or not, and really trying to have the impact. So in my mind, I said to myself, well, go back home and give it a try. Cause I was originally what I thought I would do. And if you don't like it, you don't want to stay, you don't have to. Mm -hmm. So of course I came back home and <laughs> the rest is history. So. Yeah. I, well, never, I never left. <laughs> well, and we are happy. And it's great the work that you've done for both of these hurricanes, just the devastation that it's done, but the work that you've done for the people, for your community, and not just for the, these hurricanes, just in general. It's amazing the uh, impact that you've had on, on people. Thank you. Yeah, no, you're welcome. All right. So we're at the end of this interview, and I want to get to these quick hitter questions for fun and to let you okay. get to know you a little bit better. But before we do that, is there anything additional that you would want to talk about or anything you think I might've left off asking? Make sure you're registered to vote. Make sure that you vote. And after you vote, make sure you hold your leadership accountable for the things that they say they're going to do. Why do I hold people accountable? You hold them accountable by staying engaged, paying attention and direct communication. Believe it or not, the emails that you send, the tweets and all the rest, people get that feedback and whether it's staff or the, the elected directly. So stay engaged, hold people accountable, send your emails, write your letters, call their offices, make them do the things that they're talking about doing, make sure that they do them. So I will just add that piece, not just to vote, but also to stay engaged because that's where it's going to matter most. And I cannot be prouder of seeing how engaged people have been in response to the murder of George Floyd and how people are staying vigilant about the murder of Breonna Taylor. Just the immediate responses that we're seeing right now from the public in terms of the heightened awareness. We got to, unfortunately, we have, keep having these situations arise, but we need to stay just as vigilant and not take no for an answer in terms of reversing the course of police brutality and institutionalized racism and, and the criminal justice reform that we need, but also economic reform. Economic opportunity needs to be spread across the board. And there's so much work to be done. So I'm really encouraged about how engaged and how, how closely people are paying attention right now on the whole. And I hope that we continue to keep that energy in, in a positive forward moving way. That's great. And I hope more people talk about that just for us to stay engaged and hold these elected officials accountable. Because you're right, a lot of people can say whatever, talk the talk, but we need to hold them accountable for what they say. So, That's right. Yeah. Yep. Great. All right. So let's get to these quick hitter questions. All right. <laughs> First question, what's your favorite sports team? Right now, I can't say right now. Um, Favorite sports team? I'm supposed. To, I, I'm not. I'm not gonna say. I feel like it's a trick question because oh, no, no. <laughs> if I say like, yeah, I'm not gonna say. Okay, all right. I'm not gonna say. <laughs> all right. Well, then, favorite movie or show? Okay, I'm gonna answer this one because okay. I have a new favorite. So, okay, so I've not been a huge TV watcher in the time that I've been elected. So, COVID was a new experience mm. for me. So I learned a little bit about watching TV more, you know, and I really got addicted to this show called Greenleaf. 
Oh, that's okay. on own. Mm-hmm. It's now over. I won't tell you what happened, but it was great. So that's my favorite show. <laughs> All right, Greenleaf. Okay, I think my mom's one of my mom's favorite shows too. So yeah, favorite it's on music. own. Tell your mom. Tell your mom. <laughs> Ask her if she liked the se- the series finale. Okay, I will. <laughs> <laughs> favorite musical artist or group? I have to. I'm gonna have to say, Erica Badu. Yep. Even All though right. she hasn't come out with anything new, I did see the Jill Scott versus Erica Badu like versus battle yep. thing yep. that they do on yep. Instagram. It was marvelous. I missed that so, one. I heard it was. It was fantastic. Yeah. So that was good. Mm. I like them both, by the way, but yeah. I have to still give it to Erica Badu. Erica Badu. All right. From Texas. Yeah. Favorite vacation spot? That I've been to? or that i want to go to either i would say greece ah yeah all right and last favorite food or drink (sighs) i'm gonna have to say my etouffee is (laughs) is my favorite okay um so i'm gonna say etouffee and then i'm gonna say yeah But I like a bunch of different foods, but I'm going to have to give my own self some Your own food. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. (laughs) All right. Well, Amanda, this has been great. Like I said, I really am just impressed with all that you do, all that you do for the city and hopefully for the state soon. And just love the impact that you've had here in New Orleans, everywhere you've stepped. So please keep doing what you're doing. And we thank you. And thank you for coming on to this podcast. Thank you for having me. Mm. And keep doing what you're doing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, have a good one. Okay. You too. Thanks for oh, inviting me. Oh, wait, wait. Sorry. Before we go, is there any way that people can find out more about uh, your nonprofit? I think it's Be The Solution, where they can go to find out about it. And is there any way that they can get in touch with you, um, IG, LinkedIn, anything? Yeah. Yeah. So the nonprofit is called Be The Solution Community Empowerment Organization. So that's going to be on the website with my website, www.amandakedwards.com. Mm-hmm. And so it's a page that's under construction now, but it will be live in a few weeks. And it's going to be a page on that site. And then in addition to that, they can follow me on social media. On Instagram, it's Amanda for Texas. That's the number four. So Amanda, the number four, Texas. And then on Twitter, it's Amanda for Texas, F-O-R. So Amanda for Texas. And the same is true for Facebook. So they can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the good stuff on social. That's great. All right. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or would like to be in the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.